You can turn over in your Bibles to 1 Samuel uh, 5, 1 through 5 today. We're going to take a little break from 1 John. 1 Samuel 5, 1 through 5. Let's pray. Our Father of our souls, you made us from the dust of the earth and you breathed life into us. You have cared for us from our infancy. And we have tried you and we have, you have been uh, patient with us. Will you teach us to submit to you, to trust you, to depend on you and you alone. For you alone are God. You alone are worthy of ultimate honor. Contend in the world and in the darker recesses even of our own hearts for your exclusive rights to glory. Will you make the enjoyment of your glory our chief pursuit? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stand one more time for the reading of God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1-5. through 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon in both his hands were laying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Amen. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. God says that is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. That's what he says in Isaiah 42, verse 8. This is, of course, an echo of the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And as we just heard, you shall not make for yourselves any graven image. And the reason that God gives for that is that he is a jealous God. This Reformation Sunday, I thought we'd talk about this idea of, of, of soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Um, this was the, the heartbeat, really, of the Reformation, that God alone is to be worshipped, and God alone gets the credit for our redemption. Uh, however, we as men and women are also jealous. Jealous for our own glory and our autonomy. We are ultimately idolaters. So we'll start at verse 1 today, of course. And the verse, first point that I want to bring our attention to is that God alone is to be served and trusted. God alone is to be served and trusted. I think... We might pass over it, but verse 1 of 1 through 5 here is really one of the most jarring 
sentences in the Old Testament. Uh, when the Philistines, the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. The Ark of God represented the very presence of God with his people. It housed the, the tablets, the, the manna that fell from heaven, Aaron's budded staff. On it was the mercy seat of God. It had gone before the people through the, the parted waters of the Jordan. It had gone before them around the city of Jericho before it fell. And now the Philistines of all people have the Ark of the Covenant. It's a horrifying reality. Israel had been at war with the Philistines um, and they were losing. And one day they lost 4,000 men. And they said in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 3, this is an interesting way to put it, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Then a bright idea, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So they brought the ark from, from Shiloh to Ebenezer where, and when it arrived at the camp, uh, they, they greeted the ark with shouts so loud that the Philistines heard them from miles away. At last, the, the covenant, ark of the covenant is here. We're going to defeat our enemies, the Philistines. As the ark came into the camp, uh, who was accompanying the ark? Hophni and Phineas. These were priests. They were supposed to accompany the ark, but they were the wicked priests, the sons of Eli. They were men described in chapter 2, verse 12, as worthless men who did not know the Lord. Of, of all people, to know the Lord, it should be the priests. And they are worthless men. They do not know the Lord. They took advantage of their position to take advantage of food and women, and to uh, pursue sensual pleasure. The Lord had announced to Eli, their father, through a prophet and then through young Samuel, that their death was imminent and that there would be judgment. The day after the ark came in to the camp, the Philistines routed Israel. This time it says killing 30,000 foot soldiers and scattering the rest throughout Israel. And the ark was captured. Hophni and Phinehas were killed. Eli, waiting for news on the seat by, by side the road, hears from a, a fleeing soldier the news, and he falls off of his seat, and he breaks his neck and dies. Phinehas' pregnant wife heard also about the capture of the ark and the death of Phinehas, and she went into hard labor, and just before dying, her son is born, and she names the son Ichabod. Ichabod, without glory, is the meaning of the name Ichabod. And she says, the glory has departed. When these men in Israel's camp called for the ark to be brought to Ebenezer from Shiloh, they made a grave and presumptuous error. 
First, while, while they recognize rightly that God, God's providence and his hand in their defeat by saying, why has Yahweh defeated us before the Philistines? There seems to be a hint of blame in that. Why did Yahweh let us lose to the Philistines? I know if, if we bring the ark closer, Yahweh will show us favor. And the fatal mistake was the presumption that, that God would then be obliged to bring them victory. They treated the ark as a talisman. They're not looking to God himself for rescue. They were looking to manipulate the outcome of their circumstances by bringing the ark to them. Uh, Matthew Henry comments here. He says, Note, it is common for those who have estranged themselves from the vitals of religion, removed themselves from the heart of, of religion, to discover a great fondness for the rituals and external observances of it. For those that even deny the power of godliness, not only to have, but to have in ad, admiration the form of it. So we, by nature, even if we reject the heart and soul of communion with God, we're attracted to the form of religion. And that's what they're doing. They're bringing in the ark without leaning on God to rescue them from their circumstances. During the Reformation, of course, this is one of the greatest battles. Rome had so fallen in love with the forms of the faith that it had begun to put its trust in forms rather than God himself. And indeed, as a result, the forms themselves were corrupted and so were its administrators. And the issue that we have to be aware of for ourselves is shifting the ends of God's means of grace. Hophni and Phineas, they treated their own pleasures as the ends of God's means of grace. The soldiers treated their own victory over the Philistines as the chief end of God's means of grace in the Ark of the Covenant. The helpful example for me I just came across recently, I've been listening to um, Ed Welch's book on depression. And one of the things he points out is that trials such as depression serve God's purposes. The aim of coming to God in trial, whatever our trial is, is not to be rid of the trial, but it's to come to God. God is the end He's not the means to the end. And that's so often how my own heart treats the means of grace as, as a means to my own comfort or relief and happiness. And when I come to word and sacrament and prayer and seeking those things first and I don't feel better or I don't get what I wanted, well, then we then I say, well, that didn't work. Of course it didn't work. That's not the point. We've shifted the ends of the means of grace in our own hearts. And the point of the means is not to make us feel better ultimately or to solve our problems. The point is to mediate the presence of God. <coughs> so Welch, again, he quotes from, uh, he quotes Screwtape from the Screwtape letters. This is a powerful point. He says, Remember, screw tape is a demon. <laughs> Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring,
but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. So next time you are in trial, be it emotional or one of temptation or conflict or oppression from the world, when you cry out to God, instead of starting with, Lord, I need some relief, try instead, Lord, I need you. Of course, you call out for relief as well, and God may grant it, and you may say, my grace is sufficient, my power is made perfect in weakness. So, the point is, idolatry, it may take a, a rank form like worship of, a, of an image, like Dagon and carved idols, but this first verse, with its context, proves that idolatry may actually come in subtler forms. Even the people of God who are called to worship God can go so far as to abuse and manipulate his means for our own purposes. But God and God alone is to be served and to be trusted. I'll admit that this point is kind of more of a different sola, sola fide, but they're all bound up together. Um, To replace God with anything else as the object of our faith is to replace him with an idol, which robs him of the glory that's due to his name and his name alone. So second, turning from the context to the main event of our passage, and really on a similar note, the second point, God alone is to be worshipped. God alone is to be worshipped. Verse 2, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Dagon is the idol, the god of of the Philistines. And the reason they put the ark in Dagon's temple is probably twofold. First, it is a sign of Dagon's victory over Yahweh. This is a common practice in Judges chapter 1. The people were conquering the Canaanites. And in uh, 6 and 7, we read of this king, Uh, Adonai Bezek or Lord Bezek um, fled and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Point being that it's common to try to humiliate or subordinate a conquered king to the reigning king. And this is probably something along the lines that they were doing between Yahweh and Dagon. Also, uh, the InterVarsity Press has an Old Testament background commentary and they had a helpful note here. They said, there are several examples in the ancient world of statues of a god being carried off as trophies of war. Uh, the Marduk statue is taken from Babylon by uh, the Hanaeans, 7th century, the Elamites, 13th century, and the Assyrians in the 17th century, or 7th century uh, BC. So this is common practice to take the god or the representation of the god as a form of humiliation or subordination. The second reason is quite possibly, I think, syncretism, worshiping more than one god. Um, even in, in their worst moments, Israel didn't really lay... Yahweh aside entirely, but they added other gods alongside him. 
Uh, the golden calf in the wilderness was meant to represent Yahweh. Uh, the wicked kings of Judah, such as Manasseh, brought Asherah and Baal into the house of God. So this is syncretism, worship, having a, a pantheon of gods. And the Philistines respected Yahweh as a god. When the ark entered the camp and they heard the shouts of the people, this is how they responded in 4, 6 through 8. What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? They say that because they've heard about him, or in their minds, them. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. So the Philistines respect Yahweh, and they're fearful at that point they're going to lose. And then when they win, what an opportunity. Why not add this Yahweh who defeated the Egyptians into our own pantheon of gods, and even if he is subordinate to the great Dagon? Dagon was a, a very ancient Mesopotamian god. The first mention of people worshipping him is from around 3000 BC. Um, he's listed in a, a Ugaritic text. We're familiar of, uh, with Baal more from the Bible. Um, but he's listed as Baal's father in their uh, mythology. And the Philistines were people that were not original to that Mediterranean coast. We would think of as the, the west side of, of Israel, which is where they lived. They were a seafaring people who came there, and so they probably adopted this Mesopotamian god. Um, and the meaning of, of Dagon's name is, is actually kind of unsettled. There's a relationship etymologically between it and the word fish, the Hebrew word fish. So if you Google Dagon, you'll find pictures of a sort of bearded merman. Um, type god, uh, but older commentators are more inclined to think he's a fish god. Newer ones are like, we don't know. <laughs> um, and it's possible his name is connected with the word grain or corn. Uh, whatever the case is, this god was the god, the primary god of the Philistines. Um, as another example in scripture, the famous stories of Samson with the battles uh, that he had with the Philistines end with him pushing down the pillars of the temple. And this is a temple of, of Dagon in Gaza, killing many Philistines. And they had gathered there to celebrate their victory over Samson, saying, our God has given Samson to our, our enemy into our hand. And he pushes down the pillars and kills them. But God chose his glory over and above Dagon, both with the, the, the story of Samson and here in our story. He does it again uh, in verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. So Dagon's position is, is prostrate. We, we tend to think of worship as being like this in our day, but Biblically, worship is being prostrate before somebody. It's a posture of submission, of worship. Um, as an example, on Mount Carmel, when Elijah was in his standoff with the prophets of Baal, and they both set up altars, and the, the prophets of Baal make fools of themselves trying to get 
Baal to send fire down on their sacrifice. And then Elijah, soaking his sacrifice with water, calls on the name of the Lord and fire falls from heaven and consumes his sacrifice. This is what First Kings 18 says. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. That, that's worship. That's being prostrate before Yahweh. And that's the position that Dagon was in in the morning. The people of, of Ashdod should have joined Dagon with their faces on the ground before Yahweh. But instead, this really becomes one of the more humorous, one of those what I've started to think of as yakety sacks moments in the Bible where God just makes a fool out of idols and idolaters. The reformers fought against rank idolatry and syncretism um, that the Roman church had fallen into. This is the kind of thing that they were doing, that men have been doing for eons. The, 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 the veneration of saints, of icons and relics of the host and the mass. Um, Calvin writing to his friend who found himself stuck for a time in a Roman setting. He says this about, uh, about his situation. He says, I feel compassion for your plight, for you are not yet allowed to get yourself out of Egypt where you see so many ominous signs of idols and idolatry and have constant have them constantly shoved before your eyes. You are compelled to gaze at the shameful displays of wickedness among the monks as thousands of superstitions among the people at countless mockeries of true religion. Everything there oozes and creaks with those activities. And most of all, the mass. The leading source of all abominations is presented as something to gaze and gape at, far surpassing all other examples of wickedness. Calvin, tell us how you really feel about popishness. But he's right, because this is rank idolatry, and God will not stand for it. God makes himself clear. He alone will be worshipped. All will bend the knee to him and him alone. He shares his glory with no one. He says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God, you kids, you need to share. God does not share his glory. Psalm 97, verse 7, All worshippers of images are put to shame. This is what happened in Ashdod. Shame. Who make their boast in worthless idols. And then this is interesting. Worship him, all you gods. Even Dagon fell before Yahweh. So God will not share his worship. We are to worship him and him alone. Likewise, he will not be humiliated. This is point number three, is that God alone secures the victory. God alone secures the victory. Verse 4, But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were laying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon 
Do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So in the night, Dagon fell again prostrate before the Lord. And, and this time, his head and his hands were removed. The ESV says trunk. If you go with the, the fish version of, D, uh, of Dagon, then all that's left is the, the myrrh of the merman part, the fish part. And his hands and his head are on the threshold of, of the temple, it says, which I don't know exactly where that is. Um, it could, but if, it, if the temple was anything like the temples of Dagon that have been uh, unearthed by archaeologists, the threshold of the entrance of the temple is quite some distance from where his idol would have stood. Also, uh, Kyle and Dalich point out that the verb here is cut off. His hands were cut off, not just broken. It's interesting. In other words, there seems to be some measure of intentionality and organization in the message that's being sent here. It's like the, the horse head in the bed kind of. Uh, they walk, they open the door, and there the head and hands of their God are there to greet them. The head of an enemy being on display as a symbol of victory and an announcement of victory. And uh, kind of as an ironic example, the head of Saul was removed and placed in a temple of Dagon um, by the Philistines as a symbol that, he, that they had were victorious over him. Again, the, the Old Testament background commentary offers another helpful summary. It says, the head of a conquered foe was typically displayed as evidence of his death, and cutting off hands was a way of counting casualties, as well as mutilation that demonstrated the powerlessness of the enemy. In a Ugaritic text, Anit, the goddess of battle, carries the head and hands of her slain opponents away from the battlefield. So this is a sign, a sign of military victory over Dagon, despite the Philistines killing 30,000 Israelites and scattering them, Yahweh will not be defeated. He will not share his glory with Dagon. Dagon is nothing but wood or stone or whatever he was made of. Isaiah 46, 7. They lift it to their shoulders. Just talking about idols. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save them from his trouble. Um, moreover, God will not stand beside Dagon as, as a king with thumb and big toes removed, humiliated before this other god. He will not allow a foot to be placed on his neck. He is the one who destroys his enemies. He places his foot on their necks. Isaiah 19.1 says, An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. He also says in Isaiah 46.1, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. So even the, the idols of Egypt are brought captive by the divine warrior God. 
So God alone secures the victory over his enemies. At the end of the day, the, the Israel's attempt to help God by bringing the Ark of the Covenant, uh, he didn't need them to do that. They didn't need to manipulate him into trying to secure their victory. And rather than bring victory on the battlefield to a people who were in need actually of severe chastisement, he punished both the evil in his own house and defeated Dagon. And he did it without an army, but in a dark room by himself at night. He did it alone. God alone secures the victory. Which leads us then to our final point, that God alone saves his people. God alone saves his people. Here's what we have to understand, is that God saves his people in spite of his people. We get no credit for our salvation. If his faithfulness to Israel were dependent on their faithfulness to him, he would have left them a thousand times over. But he persists in faithfulness to them as the God of promise. Did God anticipate or, or plan Ichabod as an eternal decree and curse on Israel forever? Did he say, I'm done with my covenant with Israel. I'm moving on to a new covenant with Dagon and with, with the Philistines. Following this event, we know, we're familiar with First Samuel, that God torments the Philistines with, with plagues until they can't send the Ark of the Covenant back home fast enough. And then the Lord raises up his prophet Samuel to lead and to guide his people and to ultimately select King David to rule his people. And that God would make a covenant, covenant consistent with his covenant with Adam and with, with Noah and Abraham, that, that David would have a son to rule on his throne forever. And David says in his psalm about this king who was to come, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Dagon and the devil and all of the enemies of God will be put under the feet of Christ. In John 1, um, John announces the arrival of the anti-Ichabod. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory has not departed. The, the glory has arrived. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God alone saves his people in spite of us. God alone gets the glory for our redemption. God alone is to be served and trusted. God alone is to be worshipped. God alone secures the victory and God alone brings salvation to his people. So that the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen.